Life Radio. Stories at the intersection of music and life. Welcome to another episode of Music Life Radio. I am your host, Dan Sauter. Music Life Radio is a free podcast available on iTunes and your interwebs at musicliferadio.com and features interviews and stories about and related to music. Today on the program, we feature Tracy Nelson. Tracy Nelson is a singer who has a voice as deep as any mountain and as wide as a river. Most well known for her role in the folk rock band Mother Earth from San Francisco, she harvests a rich history in rock, blues, and country and is one of our treasured American assets. She's been performing now for 50 years. She's put out 24 albums under a variety of labels. She's received two Grammy nominations for her work, performed with legends in the industry and has a ton of great stories that we're going to get into right away without further ado this episode entitled mother earth the tracy nelson story welcome uh, tracy nelson to music life radio it's great to have you on the program today thank you very much so let's get started with your early childhood. What kind of music were you listening to? What were you influenced by? And, you know, where did you grow up? I believe it was uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Yeah, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. So, of course, I heard a lot of polka music oh, yeah. growing up. And uh, my grandmother and my mother and father and, uh, you know, my brother all sang and, and my grandmother played piano. She did a gig the night before she died at age 84 or so and <laughs> uh, so you know I uh, we we listened to and sang a lot of music from that era you know 40s and even even earlier you know 30s 40s and 50s and so that's kind of what I heard growing up um, you know until I got of an age where I started being interested in rock and roll and you know stuff other than what my family listened to. What were some of those early influences that you remember uh, as far as uh, the rock and roll stuff? Everly Brothers, Jerry Lee Lewis. When I, you know, when I first started listening to music, I didn't really start listening to black music till I was in high school when I kind of, the first time I heard any, any black music at all, because you never heard it on the radio in, in Wisconsin, was when I discovered one night, or actually my brother did, um, WLAC, of Nashville that broadcasts on a uh, you know one of those big huge signals all over the country and on the right night it would bounce into you know our, our radio stations and that was uh, John R and Hoss Allen and and they after eight o'clock they played all black music gospel R and B some blues Muddy Waters and Wolf and so that was my introduction. I think I was about a junior in high school when I started hearing that stuff. But up until then, it was, you know, it was what, what was pop. I guess the only black musicians I ever heard were Little Richard and Chubby Checker. Oh, yeah. So what made you decide the, to become a singer? I mean, it sounds like you obviously had a musical family. Were you singing with your family? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I probably was singing as soon as I could talk, and, and we really would. I mean, this sounds a little Ozzy and Harriet, although I don't remember them singing except for Ricky. <laughs> um, but before we had TV, you know, we'd sit around the living room, listen to the radio. We'd, my, my mother would play piano. We'd sing songs, take different parts. You know, I was singing parts from as long as I can remember. And uh, I played auto harp. You know, when I was very young, because that's very it was very easy. Oh sure. And uh, so yeah, we you know I, I've I've always sung, and um, I I think in the back of my mind it was always there that I that's what I was going to do. Although I somehow and I'm not sure how I you know from the very beginning I always had a feeling that that trying to be a profession, professional musician or you know singer or just the music business in general was just not something I wanted to throw myself into. 
I just had a sense that it was, <laughs> you know, unsavory and difficult. So I tried pretty much everything else that I could think of, you know, before I really jumped into it. But at a point, it became clear that's all I wanted to do. <laughs> what were some of your first bands outside of, you know, singing with your family? In high school, I got together with three guys who already had a kind of an act that they did that was essentially a Smothers Brothers ripoff. And then I started singing with them. It was just, you know, it's a folk, acoustic folk. I play guitar. We all play guitar. And we had a bass player. And um, we were called the Fullerwood Singers because that's where one of the guys lived. So we did, you know, three-part harmony, Peter, Paul, and Mary kind of stuff. And I threw a few things in that I liked. And so that was the first time I actually performed, you know, in front of a, an audience. And then when I got to college, I got more into blues and performed solo as a folk blues singer for a while. And then I joined a band, an already existent band called the Fabulous Imitations. And uh, we did 60s R&B cover stuff. It was a big band, horns, three singers. You know, it was it was it was, a, it was cool, and then when, once I started doing that, I just sort of gave up anything acoustic or solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about your experiences with Charlie Musselwhite. Well, let's see. When I was still in college, I think it was my freshman year in college. I only spent two years there. I was working with a another guitar player named Johnny Kalb. His brother Danny Kalb was already a really established blues blues player ultimately was with the, uh, the blues project but his, Johnny's brother Danny and Sam Charters who was a producer for Prestige Records and also a you know very well known musicologist he died very recently mm. um, they came and did it they were doing a kind of a duo college tour you know concert tour and we all went to a party afterwards, and, and Johnny and I played, and Sam offered me a, a record deal with Prestige, you know, to cut a, a folk album. And so we went to Chicago. I was looking for a harp player, and actually we were, we were looking for um, Paul Butterfield, because he was the only harp player I'd heard of, and a, 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 an old friend of mine who played in a band with Charlie and, and Mike Bloomfield said, oh, no, you want Charlie Musselwhite. He's the real deal. So we found him and hired him, and, and then Charlie and I started dating, and, and I went out to Chicago to see him. It was kind of the end of my college career. I began spending more time <laughs> in Chicago than at college. And, uh, you know, so we uh, he played with mostly with uh kind of alternating with big walter and with johnny shine's band i mean johnny young's band and uh you know we'd just go to the different clubs and hear hear everybody i mean it, this was probably 1964 in chicago and you know silvio's almost every weekend would have Colin wolf Roses and Kelly's would, would be Johnny Young. Peppers would be Muddy Waters. Teresa's was uh, Junior Wells and Buddy Guy. And you can, you know, they, they weren't really touring or traveling that sure. much in those days. They played the Southside Clubs. So that's kind of what we did was just go and hear all these people live. And, you know, just, it was just, it was mind blowing to me to just yeah. walk into these places. And Charlie knew everybody. They, you know, they they were tolerant of most of the white blues musicians that, <laughs> you know, would come around. But, but they, you know, Charlie really, really, they really respected Charlie. So it was just, you know, it's just an amazing experience to be able to go into these places and meet these people, with, you know, with Charlie and not feel like a an interloper or a tourist. You know, it was just, it, it was, it was incredible. It's probably the best musical experience I've ever had in my life was that period of time yeah that would be quite an insight uh, into that scene that's amazing let me tell you a good story i tell it all the time i was 19 at the time you had to be 21 to get into bars at in, in chicago and i had a fake id i mean i had someone else's id that i would use to get into the clubs and and 
was a girl named Marion Shulo, and she had short, dark hair, and you know didn't look anything like me. But <laughs> they didn't they didn't pay that much attention. But we were at we went to Pepper's one night to hear Muddy, and we were standing at the entrance, and the bouncer's looking at my ID, and uh, Otis Span walked up and said hi to Charlie, and Charlie started to introduce me to him. But the bouncer is still holding this, my ID card that said I was Marion Shulo. So before Charlie could say anything, I just said, hi, I'm, I'm Marion Shulo. <laughs> and then we went and sat down at a table with muddy waters, for God's sake. Oh, and wow. Otis. Yeah. And Charlie introduced me by my actual name. And, and Otis said, well, I thought her name was Mary or something <laughs> like that. And so we explained the whole thing. You know, I was 19 and had to have a fake ID. And, Muddy got up at the next set, and about second or third song in, he, he said, I'm going to dedicate this song to Charlie's woman, <laughs> and did 19 years old. <laughs> oh, funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I say, it was, you know, the the most profound musical experiences of my life. Now, did you get to hang out with Muddy Waters much, or... Mainly Not just, really, no. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, that one time, it's the one time in six in my mind where I actually met him and spoke to him, but we'd go in a lot and hear him play. But Yeah. So with all that great musical experiences out in Chicago and whatnot, what led you to uh, move out to San Francisco? Economics. Well, actually, <laughs> the impetus was... Um, a guy that I grew up with in, in grade school and high school was the kind of pot connection around campus. Sure. And I'd go with him to Chicago where he would, you know, essentially score, you know, he, we'd drive down together. He'd drop me off. I'd hang with Charlie. He'd do what he did. And then we'd come back together. And, um, he got set up by somebody else and was busted and, and this other person who was actually a hard drug dealer persuaded the Madison police that this guy was Mr. Big, uh, which was absurd. Yeah. And um, so I was looking, you know, he was in some serious shit. And, um, and this, you know, this was I grew up in this village and this was how small the village was. My friend's mother came to my mother and said that I told her that I was going to be called as a prosecution witness because I'd, made all these trips to Chicago with him. <laughs> and so um, I had, in the meantime, won this folk contest that Randy Sparks, who had the new Christy Minstrels, ran around the country, go to colleges, have these folk contests, had to be a couple of winners. And he put together all these kind of faux new Christy Minstrel groups that toured around the country. And that's where, how he found the talent for it, was it with these contests. And I... I won the contest and just took the money and didn't intend ever to, you know, work for Randy Sparks. But, uh, cause I was already working with the, the R and B band and I just didn't want to go back to doing folk music and it's particularly not, you know, perky up with people kind of stuff. And, but when this came about with that, it was looking like I might have to testify in court against Bobby. I, accepted the gig and went out to California as fast as I could go uh, <laughs> to do. And I, I did two or three weeks at his club in, in LA. And then, then I moved up to California, but I, you know, I, I, by then I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I knew that San Francisco was a good place to be if you wanted to, you know, get some attention from record labels and the business in general. So, sure. So you had already recorded deep are the roots with prestige yeah. at that point. Right. And then, uh, yeah. Now, how did you hook up with Mother Earth, or how did you guys form up? When I was still living in Madison, I worked for Discount Record, which was a chain of record stores, and the manager there moved out to California, and I got a job at, at, at the Berkeley store with Discount Records and kind of supported myself while I looked around for bands to join. And I met Bill Graham. We did a, a radio interview a friend of mine had a radio show and he brought me in on the strength of my prestige record. And I met Bill Graham. We talked quite a bit about music and we liked the same things. He was kind of impressed. I think that I knew about people like the staple singers and blues in general. And, you know, because everything, everybody out there was all, you know, the new 
psychedelic oh, yeah, stuff. Sure. And, and, you know, he was just, he just was, was very nice to me. And he said, give me a call and I'll give you the names of all the, um, you know, the bands in town that don't have women singers. I mean, I'll give you the, their manager's numbers and you can call and use my name and see if any of them are interested in hiring, you know, a woman singer. I believe, I believe he said chick singer. <laughs> and, uh, he said, which I did. And every single one of them, with the exception of uh, Ron Pulte, with, who managed Quicksilver Messenger Service, said, no, 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 the band would never go for a woman, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, they saw what happened with Big Brother and, you know, you know mostly that, I mean, having a woman in an all-male band is a problem. You've got, you know, you got all of the conflict and, you know, male-female stuff. And once a woman is fronting a band, that's all, that's it. Every you know the the woman gets all the attention. Yeah. So yeah. they weren't they just wouldn't hear of it. And Ron Pulte tried tried real hard. He, he had me coming in here one night, and and he called me back days later and said, no, "I I've, I've done my best. I think it would be great to have a woman in the band, but they just won't even think about it." Wow. So <laughs> then I went then I went scavenging for musicians and just couldn't find anybody that played blues or R and B. And, you know, I, people say, oh, you like blues, go hear the Grateful Dead. And they go hear the Grateful Dead. <laughs> well, no, I'm not at <laughs> And there just weren't any, any musicians that I could find that were in any way interested in, in playing what I wanted to play. And then I met, um, actually, I think Steve Miller introduced me to Ira Kamen, who was an organ player from Chicago who was really into blues. And he had already started um, working with Paul St. John, who wasn't a blues artist, you know, musician or singer. He he was a just a, a brilliant, brilliant, still is brilliant songwriter, and did this stuff that was just completely unique. It wasn't psychedelic. It, it wasn't anything. It was just Paul, and it was just. I mean, I was so impressed with what I heard him do. And he was from Texas and, and loved blues and did a few, he did a couple of Percy Mayfield things and stuff. Uh, so the three of us began kind of, you know, sit, getting together and, and playing, you know, you know, just fooling around essentially. And, and they were being handled at that point by Travis Rivers, who was the managing editor of the San Francisco Oracle, which was the, one, the first, one of the first underground newspapers out there. And he came to us one day and said, I found a gr- the perfect rhythm section for you guys. And I said, great, you know, because we, we all were having the same experience trying to find people who wanted to do anything besides, you know, psychedelic rock. And yeah, yeah. I said, he said, they're all from Texas, you know, they're, you know, into jazz and R&B and, and uh, the perfect. And I said, great, where'd you find these guys? And he said, well, it's Doug Somm's band. And I had heard that Doug had come to town with a, uh, you know, with a blues band. I think it was, they were called the Funky Blues Band or something like that. And, uh, you know, he had kind of split from Sir Douglas Quintet and and uh, was trying to kind of do his own thing. And so I said, well, you know, yeah, I'm sure they would be perfect, but, but we can't <laughs> just... You know, we can't just take somebody else's band. And he said, fuck him. He just ran off with my wife. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, so we got these really great musicians, Wayne Talbert and George Raines, and, and uh, a guitar player and bass player that I, weren't really part of that, but somehow they came with the package. And, you know, so we were set. We had, we had this really good band all ready to play what we wanted to play. And that's kind of how it came together. And so you went on to do some albums as a group, but um, like the first album, wasn't it called Mother Earth Presents Tracy Nelson? It was like a country album? No, that was the third. The first record was, was Living with the Animals. Okay, I got you. Which yeah. was a Powell St. John song. The second yeah. record was Make a Joyful Noise, which we did in Nashville. We ended up a tour in Nashville, and, and Harvey Mandel had recommended that we, if we were going to be there, we should record at Bradley's Bar, and he'd done a record there. So uh, the second record was Make a Joyful Noise. And then we had some time, rent, we rented a farm and, and uh, we had another month left on the rent and we had since met Pete Drake and Johnny Gimbel because they played on Make a Joyful Noise record. We did, it was a city side and a countryside, so we did some country on that. And Pete just kind of said, well, why don't we do a country record? And 
Mercury bid on it, and then we so then we did Mother Earth besides Tracy Nelson. I got you. Yeah, I'm looking at a discography that's mainly just your solo career, and I forgot. Mm-hmm. I have the I have the Living with the Animals album. That's a great album. Tell us a story about that time frame, like recording of Living with the Animals, that first record. You know, I find it very hard to <laughs> pull out a lot of, you know, that was just such a thought at time. I mean, it, it yeah. was just, I was getting my feet wet and trying to figure all this stuff out and trying to pull all this stuff together. And, um, you know, the sessions, we were pretty much left on our own. Our producer we sent home. I don't know. The only, the only thing I really remember specifically from that period of time was one time when Albert Grossman, you know who Albert Grossman was? Uh, no, I don't. Well, he was the power manager of the time. He managed Dead and Janice and gotcha, okay. Butterfield. And, and he came to one of our sessions and I remember being a little perturbed because he just kind of walked in like he owned the place. I didn't know who he was <laughs> yeah. until somebody told me. And I had had this wonderful dog, Katie, that was on all all my record covers until she died. Uh, and Katie was in this control room lying on the sofa. And Albert came in. And I, you know, I see this guy. He was really, you know, he looked kind of hippie-ish. I mean, long, you know, big hair. And, and, but he was wearing a really expensive coat, I remember, you know, kind of a top coat and what looked like kind of Italian shoes, really expensive-looking shoes. And, and he walked over to the sofa and just shoved Katie off the sofa and uh. sat down. <laughs> and Katie came over to me, and then she walked immediately back to the sofa and threw up on Albert's shoes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, that, I kind of remember that, but other than that, I just remember, you know, just trying to get our feet wet and trying to figure out what the hell we were doing. We had a wonderful engineer, uh, Danny Healy, who, who uh, you know, helped us through the whole process. And, you know, that's, it, was, it was hard work. It was kind of scary. Sure. Now, one of the songs from that "Down So Low" that you wrote uh, went on to be used by, covered by a bunch of people. Did can you talk about the inspiration behind that song? Yeah, I didn't for a long time because I found it kind of embarrassing to admit. But uh, <laughs> I had a relationship with Steve Miller for a while when I first moved out there, and when he first came out, and he pretty much broke my heart. Like I think he broke half the hearts and the female hearts and in San Francisco. I don't know about the male hearts. <laughs> and, 
and I wrote that was the first song I ever wrote. I, you know, I, I wrote that in the throes of trying to get over that thing. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Interesting. I mean, and the song has been very good to me. Yeah. And in fact, the last time I got a really big check from it was in a movie. <laughs> I wrote ah. Steve a thank you note. <laughs> That's great. Now, how did the band Mother Earth break up? Oh, it was just kind of attrition and a natural evolution. Um, we just we kept changing musicians. I mean, you know, sure. we moved the the. It wasn't even the original band that moved to to Nashville. Some of the original people, but then we began picking up Nashville musicians. And Powell just decided he really didn't want to be in the business anymore. Yeah, which yeah. was a terrible loss to music. I mean, he was yeah. so brilliant. You know, and it just kind of evolved. This became it, it was Mother Earth, and it was Tracy Nelson and Mother Earth. And I, quite frankly, kind of got bored with having to, you know, wear the mantle of Mother Earth. It just gave people expectations about me that, you know, I just figured I'd rather just be using my name. So it it just kind of evolved. You know, there was no big, there was no big, oh, we're leaving the band, we're breaking up or anything like that. It just sort of came naturally. Sure, yeah, yeah. When did you get the record deal for your first solo album? My first solo album. Yeah, well, just the, hmm. Trace, the Tracy Nelson album, I guess, from 74 is what I'm talking about. You were out in Nashville at that time? From the second record on, I've lived in Nashville. I moved here yeah. in 69. Oh, was that the Atlantic album with the Willie duet? The Atlantic yeah. album, yeah, yes, yeah. exactly, yeah. As I say, well, we went through a lot of labels. Pete Drake used to say... Um, that I should get a gold record for having been on a million labels. <laughs> yeah. So when we decided to start working under my name, let's see that we we had left Warner's, they had left us, Warner Brothers. We just began, you know, scouting for a deal. And, and uh, we talked to Jerry Wexler and he, he really liked what I did and God bless him. And, you know, so we signed that one record deal with, with them. And how how did that uh, record go over? Well, not very well. Yeah. I mean, as I say, we only did the one record for them. And in fact, they, Atlantic, released both me and Willie. Oh, wow. Maybe <laughs> two or three weeks before we got our Grammy nomination. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of classic. So yeah, they let they released us because the record didn't do that well. But that the the single. Uh, the Nothing Cold as Ashes made it, I think, to, you know, the top five of the country's charts. Yeah. So we got that Grammy nomination, and then uh, pretty much on the strength of all that, I think, my, if I remember correctly, my next label was MCA, and I did two records for them. Yeah. How did you hook up with Willie Nelson? Was it just simply because he was on Atlantic, or did you guys, how did you guys well, meet? To- yeah, it was, it was essentially that. You know, initially I just, cut the song thinking I'd, you know, I would just, I love, when I heard Conway and Loretta's version of it, I, I loved that and I loved the song, but I really intended to do it solo. And then we kind of decided, well, yeah, it would be cool to do it as a duet. And Willie was the logical choice. One, because he was in Nashville at the time, and two, because, um, you know, we were on the same label, there wouldn't be any contractual issues. And I thought it was just so crazy and whimsical, the idea of me and Willie singing together, um, that it, it kind of struck me funny. I mean, I thought, oh, yeah. this is fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And <laughs> never dreaming that it would work as well as it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great And then, great And then, you know, Linda Ronsett was also in town at the time. I ran into her at a club, and uh, the night we were fixing to do our vocals, and um, Willie liked to record after midnight, so I was kind of just chilling time until I'm trying to stay awake till yeah. midnight and ran into Linda and brought her over and, you know, she sang harmony on it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So it all just, it all just fell together really, you know, whimsically and just was one of those amazing things that worked. Yeah. It's a great song. I recently picked up that album at a local record store. I was like, Hey, yeah, I got to get this. That's my dog Katie on the back of it. And she yeah. was the most photogenic dog that yeah. ever lived. <laughs> That's awesome. There's nothing cold ashes after the fire is gone. The bottle's almost empty, and the clock just now struck ten. 
Uh, so, so talk about some of the highlights during the recording of Sweet Soul Music. No, you know I won't, and I'll tell you why. Okay. That was the, possibly the worst experience of my life. <laughs> because because of and I can't even go into why because I'd get sued. Okay, yeah. But sure. um, it was just a really difficult, unpleasant experience. I hardly remember anything from the record. I can tell you that the producer and this just capped other things that that happened sometime before. Persuade or you know just asked me to demo a song of his that he had written, which you know I I did. I it wasn't a bad song it wasn't a good song it was just a song but there was no reason for me to say no and so i demoed it and he he put it on the record and i have always always had complete control of the material of my record yeah yeah. and i would you know i it was i nearly had a heart attack when i got my copy of the record (laughs) it's already pressed up it was already released and here's this half-assed song of his <laughs> on the record without my permission. So yeah. the whole thing was just extremely unpleasant, and that's as much as I want to say about it. Oh, well, that's that's enough. Um, and yeah. so, so I'm, I'm guessing my, my next question leads into uh, what caused a lengthy hiatus from recording in the 80s, and I'm, I would imagine that. Well, it was the to 80s to, to begin with. The yeah. 80s was, was a vast wasteland <laughs> for for many, many serious musicians. And, uh, you know, I just was not doing whatever the hell it was that, that people were buying. And so I really, you know, I just really couldn't get anybody particularly interested in letting me record what, what I wanted to record. Sure. And, and, and to give me the freedom that I'd always had recording. Now, were you still performing, uh, music or, okay. So so just a hiatus from recording in general. Gotcha. Yeah. So you got back into uh, recording in the 90s, and you released several albums on the Rounder label. Yeah, actually, I released a couple of records on Flying Fish towards the end of the 80s, I think. That was just a tiny little label. That, and they're, they're a couple of my favorite records. I mean, they, it was just, you know, I just did things I just kind of wanted to do with no, no real thought to how it held together or what, you know, what would happen with it. Then the first label that got behind what I was doing was rounder in the nineties. And uh what was that experience like? Much better than the other well, one? Well it was it was nice to be, be able to record again. Um uh Rounder was one of the very few labels that independent labels that was managing to put out product and get it sold. And yeah, it was just nice to be able to get back to doing what I hadn't been doing. You know, they they wanted me to do mostly blues. So the first record, I tried to stick to that as much as I could. And then after that, you know, I just kind of, once again, just went and recorded songs I wanted to record without any real thought to what the market was or, you know, how it held together as one, you know, people, labels. That, and I probably, the record buying public liked things in a slot. Yeah. And I've just never, I've never <laughs> been able to to do that so but they gave me the latitude after that first record to pretty much do what i wanted to do and then we then we did the trio record with the uh with me and marcia ball and irma thomas and you know uh, i will be forever grateful to them for that experience that was just a dream come true what was uh, so great about that uh, irma thomas was probably my first serious musical influence I mean, when I was working in a record store in Madison, a girl from Louisiana came in and ordered some Irma Thomas records. And I said, oh, I don't know who that is. And she said, oh, you you would love her. You got to listen to her, blah, blah, blah. So when the records came in, I took them home and listened to them before I called her and told her her records were in. (laughs) I just fell in love with Irma Thomas. I mean, I loved her material. I loved the way she sang. And she had just been my idol forever. So, um, you know, being able to sing with her, and get to know her and, you know, tour with her was amazing. And I'd also always been a big fan of Marsha's and we both loved Irma. I don't know. Have you heard that record? No, I haven't, but I'm going to have to check it it's, out. Yeah. It's called Sing It. Sing It. Yeah. Uh, well, and that was the, the song that you got another Grammy nomination for, right? Well, for the record. Oh, for the record. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah. I mean, the record was called Sing It. There was a song called Sing It on it, but we, we got, yeah, we got a nomination for the record. You know, we each had our own songs on the record, and then you know, when we toured, we'd we essentially did the record. But you know, 
when there was time, Irma would do one of her songs. Time is on my side was, she, you know, she had the first hit on Time is on my side. No, actually, she didn't. Uh, someone else did. Clyde McFadder, I think. No, that was without love. I can't. Remember. Anyway, somebody uh-huh. else had a kind of minor R and B hit on it. Then Irma had a pretty big regional hit on it. And Martha and I would be singing with her, you know, singing back up with her on Time is on My Side, and we'd just look at each other and kind of go, geez, do you believe we're doing this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just, just, you know, it was an amazing thing to be able to, you know, put under your belt. What's the one song that, if you had to pick one, to, for people to check out? I would say You Don't Know Nothing About Love, it, which was just me and Irma. When we performed it on stage, I just went on to another plane. Yeah, wow. I mean, it was... It was just always just this incredible, you know, kick in the butt when I, when I sang that with her. Did you ever know what it is to be hurt? And did you ever feel, feel like dirt? Did you ever give up all of your pride just to have him, have him by your side? Well, if you
I did check out another one of the recordings you did later in 2004, and I thought this was super awesome. This uh, You did a live album at the West Tennessee Detention Center, live yeah, at Cell yeah. Block D. How did, you, how did you go about coordinating something like that? Well, that was, that was another one of those kind of happenstance things. David Less, who started this label in, in Memphis, had another artist. And God, I can't think of his name. He's really a good blues artist, but I can't think of his name. Uh, and he had set up this recording at the at the prison for him. Okay. And it was all set to go, and then he just all, you know, kind of at the last minute decided he didn't want to do it. <laughs> so David called me and said, you know, how'd you like to do a record at a prison? I said, you know, sign me up. <laughs> and so it was already all in place. So it was a minimum security, not minimum security, but, it you know, it wasn't like Q, or actually I have played at San Quentin. Yeah, but um, there's a wonderful organization in California called Bread and Roses. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we we did a number of prison shows with them. But so it wasn't that wasn't not my first big prison gig. Yeah. So they you know they just had to get permission, set it all up, and you know, and like I say, everything was in place when we went to do it. It was it was a rare and extraordinary experience. It was kind of daunting initially. <laughs> sure. But. But um, you know, just 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 an amazingly rewarding, wonderful experience. Wow! Yeah, it's just like serendipity moment almost, huh? You know, most of the things I've ever done that came out really good, that's the way that that's that's the way it <laughs> came about. Yeah, well, that, yeah. more more thought you put into something, the the you know more you suck the life out of it. <laughs> yeah, I I can understand that. So when did you play San Quentin? That was with Bread, Bread and Roses. We played St. Quentin. We actually played Alcatraz, but it was a park by then. We did a um, fundraiser at Alcatraz. And we did Napa, and we did um, Marin County Jail Prison, the one that Frank Lloyd Wright designed. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that, they, that's what they do, is put music in various institutions. Um, Mimi Farina organized the whole thing that she died some years ago and they've kept up the work thank goodness yeah well that's very cool so in the mid 2000s uh you toured with some great musicians as part of the chicago blues reunion how did you uh, form mm-hmm. up in that group well i was kind of invited they were already they'd already been put together that you know they were doing this thing with corky and and nick gravenitis corky siegel nick gravenitis sammy lay um and uh harvey mandel and Barry Goldberg, who was who produced my first record, and the first Mother Earth record, or sort of produced the first Mother Earth record. We, we as they say we decided we didn't need him, and so And they just asked me that I want to do some shows with him, and it kind of gelled, and and we did the the live record, and. Again, I didn't. I didn't even know we were doing a record. We did a show at Fitzgerald's <laughs> in Chicago, and all of a sudden, I see all this equipment. And the next thing I hear is, "Yeah, we're putting on a record of the show." <laughs> Any um, great moments from the tours? No disrespect to everyone else in the band, and we had a great band. I mean, the music was just fabulous. But, yeah. but getting to know Sammy, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not belittling anyone else, but getting to know Sammy Lay was just the best. I, I had met him once or twice, not in Chicago, but when he was playing with Butterfield and, and I met them out in, in California. And he's just just a wonderful man. He's being inducted into the uh, uh, Rock Hall of Fame this year with, with Butterfield's band. Oh, awesome. And just he's just, you know, he's just a, a wonderful, funny guy. He knows every song that was ever written by anybody ever. We would sit on the bus and he... he plays gets a little guitar and he would just you know you just throw a song at him and he'd sing it and uh you know just he's just the, the coolest nicest guy so that was that was that was really the hallmark of that whole thing for me talk about some of your uh, more more recent recordings victim of the blues well victim and the blues broads record have you got that no i don't have that one i'm up to okay, check okay go go to the the blues broads website and I'd, lo- I'd love to talk about this. The Blues Broads, uh, we did a, a live recording, you know, CD, DVD. And the DVD is on the website. You can see the whole show. 
Okay, cool. And um, Victim of the Blues was uh, something I'd been I worked on for a very long time, and I, I you know I just did it myself. I didn't have a label when I when we did the record, and my my mate Mike Dysinger and I just kind of went in the studio when we could and and cut. You know, he he's produced my last few records, and uh, we cut the tunes and then started shopping it and uh, it, it wasn't until we almost lost it in a fire that we actually got a deal and got it released Ooh. so that was a, that was a labor of love and and again I just you know totally put in whatever I wanted to to do if I thought of something you know I'd we'd pull the money together and we'd go do it then the Blues Broads record was the, fi- the last thing that I've done and and I really recommend you go go check that out because it, it's the, it's the most fun thing I'm doing in a long time and uh, since probably since the trio record. Um, it's me, Angela Straley, a uh, great great blues singer from Texas who now lives in California. Dorothy Morrison, who was the lead singer on Oh Happy Day. Okay. You know the Edwin Hawkins Oh Happy Day. And uh, Annie Sampson, who had a band called. Stone Ground about the same time we were starting out with Mother Earth. And so the four of us do this kind of review, our own stuff, sing together. It's, you know, it's just huge fun. Oh, that sounds very cool. Definitely check that it, out. It's, it is. I mean, it's one of those things that, you, that when you hear sisters sing together, yeah, you know, they just have this innate ability to kind of gel. And that's kind of the, the we did tried various combinations of people. Uh, Maria Moldar was singing with, with us. Carlene Carter sang with us some. Um, uh, Linda Tillery. Uh, but when me, Annie, Angela, and Dorothy got together, it was just it just worked, and, and it, it, it's huge fun. Woke up this morning, my pillow was wet. I guess I knew it was as good as it would get. Made me some breakfast of orange juice and gin And I started thinking about the shape I'm in The best I could do is to keep going down So I caught me a ride to the hard side of town I found the monkey's ball on the monkey's tree Didn't think twice what would happen to me Walked into that Can uh, people go to learn more about your music? So we mentioned the Blues Broads website. YouTube. YouTube. Yep. Uh huh. I am all the fuck all over YouTube. <laughs> That's awesome. And and from the earliest stuff, I think you can even find live recordings from the Fillmore. Yeah. Um, to my latest performances. I mean, you know, it's uh, there's you know, God bless YouTube. I like. People will say, "Oh, check this out!" And it's something I had no memory of doing, and yeah. there it is on YouTube. <laughs> Some, you know, and that—that's a mixed blessing sometimes. But yeah, what I've got one last question, and with the sum all of right. all your music experiences, what does music mean to you? Well, it's you know, it's been my life's blood for fifty some years. So you know, how do I how do I sum that up? Um, I am, I am every day just reminded of how important music is. I mean, I, I just, you know, I, I've, I've worked with 
autistic kids who couldn't when I, before I started singing professionally, I worked briefly, you know, with kids and, and, uh, you know, kids who never focused, just were in their own world. You, you sit down and play a song and they sit down and they focus. There are people with, I, I did a, a show in Scotland for some profoundly disabled children. And I remember one person who, was so uh, palsied and, you know, just just never, he just seemed like he was constantly in a state of seizure. We started playing and he, he stopped shaking and twitching and began keeping the beat. Wow, that's amazing. Um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, it's a profound, amazing thing that I, you know, I could... I couldn't put in a few words yeah, yeah. and you know, and I, and I'm just all, you know, forever. That's what I do. I haven't got rich on it. I, I don't know how to do anything else. I can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. 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 Well, it's hard to sum up 50 years in a hour interview. But, yeah. uh, is there anything that we, like I say, you take, go to YouTube and you'll get a yeah. good cross section. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I've definitely watched a bunch of the clips on there, and, and it is very yeah. impressive. I, I love YouTube. Just if anytime you want to learn anything about any new music, you can pretty much find something on it. On I know, YouTube. I know. Yeah. I, I did almost all my research uh, for the victim of the blues record on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about? Can't think of it. Well, you know, thank you so much. For I think I think we co we covered quite a bit, don't you think? Oh yeah, I know. I think this was great. It was some great stories, yeah. and uh, I learned a lot more about you. And I've I got some homework. I'm gonna go check out some of the this newer stuff that I haven't uh, checked out. I've, yeah. Most of the stuff I've listened well, to has been the the older older stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean it's you know it's pretty hard to keep up with me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, have right. a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye. 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 When you went away I cried for so long And I wanted you to stay
What a great interview with Tracy Nelson, huh? Now let's go over some musical credits. The intro music and the music that's behind me now, Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. This is Matt's Blues. Then we heard Mother Earth performing Mother Earth from the album Living with the Animals. Next up was Tracy Nelson and Willie Nelson doing the duet After the Fire is Gone on Tracy Nelson's Atlantic recording. Next up was You Don't Know Nothing About Love, featuring Marsha Ball, Tracy Nelson, and Irma Thomas. That's from the Sing It album. Then we heard Living the Blues from the Blues Broads. The Blues Broads are Dorothy Morrison, Tracy Nelson, Angela Straley, and Annie Sampson. And that's off of their live recording. And that last song was Down So Low, probably our most famous and widely covered song that was from the album live from cell block d in 2004 thanks again for checking out music live radio i am your host dan sauter and we'll catch you next time